Hey everyone, I'm Sabaria. And I'm Nadi. Welcome to our podcast. We are your Wealth Strategies Duo. We are here to solve and help you discover your day-to-day financial doubts. Stick around for real conversations, real strategies from everyday people and practitioners who matter. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of What the Money the Podcast. It's been a great start to season two of What the Money the Podcast. We received so many positive feedbacks and overwhelming questions after the release of our previous episode. Will writing and estate planning. It's been amazing and what Sub and I realized, will writing and estate planning is a huge topic on its own. So, which is why we will continue with this topic, but today we are inviting a lawyer who has witnessed many will writing cases. Our guest today, Mr. Zul Ikmal, a young accomplished lawyer who's been practicing for a good five years. Mr. Zul is head Sharia law practice in Fernandez LLC. He specializes in Sharia-related matters such as divorces, will drafting, and Muslim inheritance. Thank you so much, Mr. Zul, for being with us today. Would you like to share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and what do you do? Assalamualaikum, everyone. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here and uh, being invited to give uh, some sharing and inputs on uh, estate planning and whatnot. Uh, again, a little bit about myself. I've uh, collectively, over my period of uh, training and uh, practice, I was admitted to the Singapore Bar in 2020. And uh, collectively, that would be four years about working in Fernandez LLC as a head Sharia law in the department. And pretty much um, my main specialty uh, as a lawyer would be representing client in uh, divorce cases. Uh, incidentally, with that also comes with estate planning thereafter. Uh, even for married couples, also they have uh, come to me for estate planning matters such as you know drafting of Muslim wills and uh, guiding and advising them on Muslim inheritance at the same time. All right. Thank you for the intro, Mr. Zhu. I mean, like I mentioned earlier just now, we received so many questions with regards to will writing after the, mm-hmm. our first episode previously. Let's yep. start with the basic, Mr. Zhu. What assets and properties fall under FARA 8 and what do not fall under FARA 8 under Singapore law? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, firstly, a lot of people tend not to understand what are the assets that uh, you know, fall under FARA 8 and what are the assets that does not. Uh, particularly, most people should first understand the very basic rule. What are the main three assets that does not fall within FARA 8 would be, for example, where a couple own a HDB property. And this ownership is based on joint tenancy, for example. Now, in the event where one of the owner or the spouse were to pass away, uh, that does not cover under FARA 8 of that deceased estate. Reason being because in the principles of joint tenancy, survivorship, the, the rule of survivorship will be applicable. Therefore, the surviving owner, which is a spouse likely, would then uh, assume 100% ownership. And, and that particular uh, asset, the HDB, will then fall within the last survivor's estate. So meaning once the last survivor passes on, now that HDB then becomes a Farah Ah, all right. Okay. So that's for HDB. That's for HDB. So the other one would be like, for example, your CPF. Okay. Your CPF monies, there is a nomination clause. So while you nominate uh, to whoever individual that you want, uh, that itself becomes part of a, a gift 
uh, you know, and this has been also established and uh, you know validated by the fatwa of the Muiz committee, committee, the Muiz uh, fatwa committee. So they have uh, you know suggest that while one individual were to nominate their CPF monies to any particular individual, whether it's uh, Ali Waris, meaning a Faraid beneficiary, or to any anybody, any individual could be a Sahabat or anybody else, that itself would constitute as a valid gift, a hiba rather than it being uh, uh, you know, to be distributed upon Farid after death. Now, in the event that there is no nomination, then this money uh, goes to the public trustee. Administrator or the executor will then uh, have to take out this CPF money from the public trustee and then apply uh, the provisions of Farid or the principles of Farid for distribution. But where there is a nomination, it does not fall under Farid. Another one would be, for example, if you if couples have, or rather, if two individuals have monies in a joint bank account, yeah. So this itself also is the same principle as like joint tenancy, right? The rule of survivorship mm -hmm. will apply. So, for example, if uh, you know a person, uh, two people have a similar joint account, and one passes on away, that monies inside does not form part of that deceased estate. It will automatically be given to the surviving uh, account holder. Ah, okay, okay. With regards to that um, joint account, eh, uh, Mr. Zul, yes. say that I'm doing it with one of my children. I have yes. a joint account with one of my children and I passed on. Yeah. But if I do it as a form of amanah, like for her to just, you know, ease of transactions and all for me, I need mm -hmm. to do up a, a will to make sure that that joint account doesn't go to her 100%. Is that right? Yes, yes, but you see, if you even if you have a will, uh, that does not negate the fact that the rules of survivorship is still applicable, and that will supersede that instructions of yours in the will. If only that that is contested. So, for example, if you have a will to suggest that, or oh, this money in a joint account is supposed to be distributed accordingly based on the instructions of your will, right? Mm -hmm. And say there is a contest by the the surviving joint account holder, because to him or her, you know, technically upon your death, uh, they will assume 100% ownership of that money, right? So if they disagree with the will instructions and it's contested, then, uh, you know, you fall back towards the civil law application of where the rule of survivorship will apply. And that uh -huh. itself, uh, you know, would supersede your instructions in the will. I guess, I mean, because we are living in Singapore, civil law supersedes, uh, I mean, Sharia law, to be honest, right? Yes. Only that, like, let's say in a family and, you know, the same thing, like, I have that joint account with my daughter. Yes. I guess if she she knows that it's an amana, she would, I mean, religiously, she would do the right thing. Correct of or course, not? <laughs> it is a grey area and it's rather subjective, you see. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. You know, one cannot compel another person uh, to follow what you feel it's just and equitable or rather what would be religiously correct. True, correct? true, so, true. So I guess it boils down to the individual and of course, uh, you know, we always pray and hope that, you know, whatever the individual decisions that they make, uh, it is made with the right intention. I think uh, everything else comes with intention actually. Yeah? Yes, agree. <laughs> so I guess, Nadi, I cannot have a joint account with one child. I have to have joint account with all three child. <laughs> and same amount, eh, kalau boleh. <laughs> To be fair. So, so like what uh, orang orang uh, our Malay mothers usually say, jadi mati tak belak belak. <laughs> another thing I want to add on uh, what are the other assets that does not fall under fire? It one of it is is in fact insurance, right? 
So insurance mm. where there is also a nomination clause that does not fall yep. under the Faraid distribution. All right. Uh, all only right. if it's only if it's nominated lah. So Nadia, exactly. we have a we have a huge role to play. Eh, where we have to make sure that our policy owners actually do yes. the nomination so that it's all fair and just. You. Yeah. Otherwise, it will go to a public trustee again, right, Mister Zoom? Exactly. Zoom? And and because when there is a nomination, uh, you know, it is clearly from the intention of the testator or the the person that nominates. So that is hardly contestable, or you know, you can't you can't contest that. Uh, because mm, it's done, uh, it done purely from the intention of the test data. So even because if people contest, there's no point now. Uh, once there's nom- this, because there's a nomination. A nomination is also coupled with the need for a witness, correct? Yes, correct. Yep, correct, correct. So all wives out there, please make sure your husbands do nominations. <laughs> In both CPF and your respective insurances, I believe yes, uh, that would be you know, right. a way forward to to prevent this sort of dispute uh, or rather contestable matters. Oh. Especially and to be honest, a lot of us, like, they take the CPF nominations pretty lightly. They do. Yeah, they do, uh, they do. So I, I think I we all should across, start. I do come across uh, a lot of uh, clients upon their death. Uh, CPF nomination has yet to be made. Mm. Because of that, you know, the monies uh, are put to public trustee and it will be a, a much more long-winded process for the executor or the rather the administrator to, uh, you know, gather all the monies and, and, you know, distribute it to the people or rather to the beneficiary, which sometimes, you know, time is, is important, especially at the present circumstances where, you know, everybody's, you know, grieving over the death of the testator and financial needs. Yeah, they say life goes on, but then again, bills need to be paid. Yeah, just to add on, and since we are on this topic, CPF, right, to all our listeners mm-hmm. out there, CPF nomination can now be done online. Is that easy? Is, yeah. Yeah. Easy. Instead of because previously last time you need to walk in, people will say, "Oh, I do not have time." But now you can just log in, take five minutes, ten minutes, and do your nomination. Yeah. Have yeah. yeah. You I just mean, need two witnesses. Yeah. Exactly. The procedures are all simplified. So. Yeah. Right. You know, I've been witnessing a CPF nomination, which I don't even know what was the nomination. It doesn't matter as long as I know that this person is currently nominating his CPF money to someone. Correct. 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 The witness need to acknowledge that the nomination is not valid. I will not go through. Yeah. That's so yes, please do your nominations, especially the wives who I mean, uh, talking about this again. When when we do the farad division, the wives always get the least. Not say that uh, kita nak harder too, but then again, uh, for those with young children, I think it's pretty essential. All right. So uh, Mr. Zul, as a Muslim, I understand that we fall under the AMLA law. Mm-hmm. What should us Muslims know about the legal rights that we have here in Singapore? Well. I mean, AMLA is our Administration of Muslim Law Act that, uh, you know, governs all the Muslims in Singapore uh, in relation to, you know, the three main matters, uh, which is our mu'is, uh, our marriage divorces, and also our assets, property, and uh, inheritance. So uh, if we are on the topic of estate planning, for example, uh, if you were to look at uh, Section 111, now that Section 111 of the AMLA does uh, allow a Muslim to dispose his or her asset uh, through a will writing uh, instrument, right? And of course, but the will has to be subjected to the Muslim law. So one of it is which when one person or rather when one Muslim writes a will, uh, that will is only limited to one third of your estate, whereas because the other two third will automatically be covered under Farah. And most people may not understand what you mean by one third, right? So Correct. one third of your estate can be willed out to your non-Faraid beneficiaries. 
So for example, if let's say I have a friend or I have even stepchildren, all right, that does not cover under my Faraid bloodline, right? Mm-hmm. I would I would want to use my one third portion that I'm entitled to to give one third of my estate up to one third. It doesn't have to be specifically one third. It could be a portion that is up to one third of your entire estate that you would like to, uh, you know, will it. Uh, in the event of your death, and then uh, this person would be able to inherit it. Whereas uh, the other two-thirds will automatically be covered for the all the other aliwaris that, that are covered in Faraid. So for example, your mother, your parents, your siblings, your children, your spouse, uh, those will be covered under the two-thirds. So, so as far as uh, Section 111 of AMLA, it does permit a Muslim to dispose his or her asset uh, through a will writing instrument. And if you were to look at section 112 itself, uh, the next provision does state that uh, in the event uh, a Muslim individual passes on without a will and uh, automatically that distribution of the assets would be covered under Farah now, okay, okay. now, it's not to say that when you have a will, you completely circumvent Farah right? Because it's only limited to one third. Because the other two-thirds, it's still covered under Farah But the moment you pass this on without, in the absence of a will, then Farah automatically takes the entire portion of your estate and divide it according to the, the inheritance certificate, which, which what you will essentially need uh, to see who is entitled to what. All right. And uh, I think I, I've heard this quite a couple of times. I mean, um, when you have sons, they are like considered your gatekeepers, hmm. meaning... For people with no sons, I mean, all daughters, for example, eh? yeah. and what would you recommend, especially for people with no sons? Well, I mean, I, I will be happy to share my, my understanding and perspective. Uh, and mm-hmm. whatever I'll be sharing also, it's something that could be obtained publicly. Uh, is, is rather general knowledge rather than specific legal advice per se. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, because as a male waris, all right, you are, you know, the asoba of your parents' legacy, right, of your father and your mother's uh, legacy. And, uh, you know, pretty much the Farid will allow uh, the male beneficiary to receive the majority portion of their assets, right? So in the event where, you know, a couple does not have sons, uh, you know, and they have daughters, automatically you know that the daughters would be entitled to at least 50% of the, of the estate. Okay, and then the other 50%, of course, uh, where the parents are still alive, for example, uh, you know, your parents are still alive, they would be entitled to. You see, when you talk about parents, uh, if the father is still there, then the buck stops with him as having the, you know, the male beneficiary portion. Because if, for example, uh, you know, if you talk about yourself, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you're in, you, if you have daughters and your father is no longer around, uh, then your uncles would be the next in line, the next uh, asoba or the male ah, okay, to okay. receive it. But that does not discount the fact that your daughter will still get at least 50% of your estate. And then and then comes your parents and then after that all the uncles and uh, and whatnot. Uh, it goes down the line. So of course, uh, you know, if you have a male waris son, uh, you know, that itself would be like what you suggested, the gatekeeper. All right, so daughters still get 50% and then after and, that is distributed to the male correct, uh, beneficiaries, correct. their uncles answer, or grandfathers. Yeah, okay. I'm so sorry. And to answer your question, whether or not then the will is necessary, mm. correct? Depending mm-hmm. on what you intend to, you know, dispose your asset through the will. Like I said, your will is limited to one third. 
and that okay. one third cannot be given to a faraid beneficiary, right? Because two-thirds of it is already covered. So, for example, your daughter is your faraid beneficiary. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. cannot give her part of that one-third. Oh, so, so I can oh, give Okay, more. okay, okay. So, she's already getting through faraid. Okay, okay. Now, now, now we are very clear. Now, I'm very clear. <laughs> so, what usually people would do is, or rather, right, people would uh, come to me and ask me whether or not uh, Nusria would be the best way forward uh, or rather to apply uh, towards their estate distribution. Now, Anusria is a vow, right? Okay. Some sort like a intention that you make under certain conditions. Like for example, if I pass away three days before my death, if it's due to sickness or one away, if I pass away uh, due to a sudden accident, for example, this is how I would want to or rather how I intend to distribute my assets or my estate to be distributed. And you can say that I give everything to my daughter, for example. Mm-mm. right? So for example, in your situation, say you have no sons and you only have daughters and your parents are still alive, for example. If you were to follow Farah, yes, your daughter does get 50% of that and then mm-hmm. followed by your, your two parents, right? In the event that you want to give your daughter everything, yes, you can, you can write a Nusria to say that if anything happens to me under these preconditions, I give everything to my daughter. Now, in order for this to really take place in, in our country or rather in, in the jurisdiction of Singapore, of course, uh, at the end of the day, the two parents who are also technically entitled to your estate, they must agree. They must consent. Oh, okay. So, for example, where you wish to give everything to your daughter and your two parents at the end of the day, after your death, they were to say, oh, but, you know, I, I disagree because I feel that I am also entitled to as your parents, right? Mm-hmm. As your surviving parents. And... If there is no consent, rather there is this agreement or contest, then um, you know the default position that the Singapore law takes is that you know it will go back to Farid. But at the very least, at the very least, the surviving beneficiary would know this is what you have intended prior to your death. So then it boils down again to like what you say is a question of amana is to do what is religiously right. Say, say that person like you were saying that three days before he passed, he's already sick. Like you know, you know that he's going to pass on yes. soon. So, yes. like, you know, the days before he passed on, how does he complete this news, Ria? Like, you know, on well, his deathbed or something? Like, you know, he calls upon somebody or... Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, te- technically he can, but provided that he also qualifies whether or not he can be able to give instruction or whether or not he is of sound mind to make mm. that kind of decision. Ah, uh, Okay. Yeah, so if, if you're saying that he's uh, that person is really a vegetable and, and, and you know, uh, uh, he can't make this sort <laughs> of decisions, then unfortunately the will will not be valid because you know he can't be the one to give instructions on how that you know his estate is to be distributed. But if he must be like, mentally sound, definitely. Exactly. So it is not to wait until you are at that stage. Correct? Mm, it is to correct. do it as soon as you can. And in the event, then when you are at your deathbed three days before your death, this is what would have been reflected as far as your intention goes. Uh, okay, just, a, I mean, the three days before was just a, a confirmation. Exactly. Something like that. Okay, okay. Because yeah. like, you know, people on their deathbed, I don't think they are able to think about the... No time, you know, no the, time. Yeah, no time to estate and all that. Yeah, so it's, I mean, preparation is key, la, Mr. Zoo. I mean, wow. still, it's... <laughs> still, so at the end of the day, people also will ask me, then why do a Nusria if it's not certain? That uh, you know, the nuclear right. can be yep. can be contested. Or, or yeah, and while it can be contested, and if it's contested, the default position that the courts are likely to take is, uh, you know, go back to the default position of Farah. Mm. So you know, 
like I said, it all boils down to the individual uh, to at least know that, you know, because here, technically, we are, you know, this is all duniawi, right? We can contest to what uh, you feel that you are entitled to, but in Ahirat also, at the end of the day, we all have to answer for all our actions Correct. here. Correct? Well, we can contest and, and get it according to what we want here. In Ahirat, we are also going to answer for what we have done. For example, going against the wishes of Arwa. Right? Because if this is what Arwa wants to give to true, a particular true. person... For the reasons that must be justifiable. Firstly, when you do a Nuzria, it is not to shortchange the other beneficiary. It is to protect the welfare of the beneficiary that you want to give. For example, like your daughter. You only have one daughter. You want to give her everything because you feel that in this present circumstances, they, she would require uh, all these assets that you have. And later in her, good, in her good conscience and in her good faith, if she wants to give it to your parents... Uh, that would be that would be on her mm. but then again um, you know this is your intention if you are doing it because you are safeguarding that particular beneficiary's interest then the nuzra is permissible tapi kalau if you are doing it uh, with the intention to oh I don't want my parents to have any of uh, you know any of my asset because uh, they have mistreated me as a child and all that kind of thing then, then, then it's not permissible that is wrong because at the end of the day when we do all this it also boils down to our niat to our intention definitely mm, okay definitely. Too very important eh? yeah and do, and do tell me if i'm speaking a bit too fast no no no, no it's perfect yeah <laughs> because i think we have we have so much to ask you that i think yeah it's a perfect pace okay. yeah okay perfect. so let's uh, move on so this is something i personally would like to know lah, because i haven't gone through serious cases like this what is the process of administering the deceased estate is it simple or complicated? Sounds scary to me. Well, the, the process is rather very procedural. And most people, you know, or rather when they are trying, you know, still grieving over the death of their loved ones and all that, uh, to be burdened with all the paperwork and all the procedural matters yep. may, may be difficult. And that's the reason why most uh, people would rather get a lawyer to do it for them uh, so that the process is smoother. You know, and also because you know, if an individual wants to do it on their own, they need to understand the, the nuances of what uh, it is required to obtain either a letter of administration, that is in the event a deceased passed away without a will, so then the, the need to apply for uh, letters of administration is, is, is what it needs to be done. Now, in the event that person do pass away with a will, and you are, say, the executor of that will, then you need to apply for this uh, procedure called grant of probate. Now, to do this, again, is, uh, it could be complex because it involves a lot of paperwork, a lot of supporting documents, and uh, it's time-consuming. So, you know, it would affect your daily routine where you need to administer all this. And that's the reason why people just get a lawyer to do it, uh, where it would be a lot more convenient. Lah. And usually the time frame is uh, how long from the start of the, um, the, the process? It all depends, but I would say the quickest we can get would be at least or so six to eight months. All depends on timelines that, that the court has set for months. for the particular individual quite long, to, huh? to provide supporting documents and whatnot. Yes, it is. It is mm. quite long because uh, mm. every day I believe the courts are also administering <laughs> every other deceased estate. Uh, that's why nomination it's greatly emphasized because especially if you know you're living behind a spouse with young children, I'm sure they need the the financial means to actually get by. Uh, and especially if the wife is a stay-at-home mom, no income and things like that. So when when it comes to nomination, it's pretty quick, right, Mr. Zhu? 
It is because, for example, and in, where deceased has nominated his CPF monies, uh, CPF will essentially just hand over the check to the nominated beneficiaries. Uh, I think nowadays it's no longer check. It's uh, it's transfer to bank account pretty yeah. quick. <laughs> there you go. There you go. SDG, yeah, SDG. it's quite seamless. Yeah. yeah. So that's why that's why really to all our listeners. Please do your necessary nominations. You are being fair. You are being responsible to, to the people that you leave behind. Mm-hmm. All right. Mr. Zul, can you share with us how much does it cost to engage a lawyer? And must my lawyer be a Muslim or can I just engage any lawyer to do up my will? Um, again, I think legal fees varies from lawyer to lawyer. You know, I think uh, if you were to look up at various law firms, I think the market price would start from 500 and above, uh, you know, there's, there's no particular gauge. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, people would pay more for, to a particular lawyer for the service or for the kind of quality or guidance that one can give. So uh, there's no definitive price range. And whether or not that lawyer has to be Muslim is all a matter of preference. Uh, you know, as a Muslim, you would probably feel more comfortable and rather confident that a Muslim lawyer is there to assist you, especially when it concerns uh, the context of our religion. Uh, there'll be the advice are more catered rather uh, okay. to your specific needs and uh, you know, understanding of, of the religion and the law at the same time. A non-Muslim lawyer can also practice Sharia law. Uh, oh. oh, okay. They can? They can. They, they can. can. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. So it's not necessarily a Muslim lawyer. Nope. All right. Think, uh, okay. To choose counsel is a matter of just your own preference. All right, all right. Okay, um, that's interesting. I mean, I can really just choose anybody. So I got another question, Mr. Zo. How about mm-hmm. having properties and assets overseas? Just now you mentioned about our Singapore law. Do I need to actually engage a lawyer in that country where my assets are? Or can I just engage a lawyer in the country I am a citizen of? For example, I have Tana in Malaysia. Hmm. So I think example, that's pretty common, eh? I yes, mean, yes. having houses overseas nowadays for investments and things like that. And houses are immovable properties. Uh, they are real estate properties. Okay. Uh, you know, well, when one has immovable property overseas and say that that falls under, say, Commonwealth jurisdiction, uh, you know, your Singapore will can make reference to that overseas um, property as long as it's fall within the same Commonwealth jurisdiction, I think then your Singapore will is still valid to be used. But if that overseas property falls uh, within a non-Commonwealth jurisdiction, for example, and uh, then what would be the best way to make sure that that is also administered, it is to do a will in that jurisdiction. So what are the countries that's under the Commonwealth uh, jurisdiction? Well, one of it is your Malaysia. Malaysia is also under Commonwealth jurisdiction. Your, your typical Commonwealth uh, countries, right? Uh, former British colonies. Uh, ah, all right, all right, all right, all yeah. right. Okay. A bit of geography. So only... <laughs> that's why that's why I'm like, I'm so tempted to go into Google to like, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm glad that it's bite-sized information for our listeners to actually, you know, to grab. So it's, yep. it's really good. It's really good. Okay. Again, why is there a need for a will since we have nomination under our law? Mm. Like I said, um, you know, as far as uh, whatever your, your nomination can control or can distribute is based on the fact that there is a nomination instrument. But what about your other assets that does not come with a nomination tool, for example? Say if a person has a shoebox full of cash at home. Okay. 
yeah and uh, or say that that person has uh, assets that like like what i previously said do not have any nomination clause uh, you know then of course uh, we one writes a will then that will is supposed to instruct or rather show what can be disposed and how it should supposed to be disposed to a particular person or beneficiary yeah in order to perhaps avoid uh, having to dispose this asset by way of will then is to give it away in your lifetime Ah, okay, okay. That's that's pretty true. Okay, just I just have a one question. Okay, say your car. Is there a way for you to wheel it, or how does it go when you car? I mean, some people take cars as assets. Yes, in fact, yeah. uh, I mean you can always put it your vehicle as part of your asset to be distributed, right? Uh, distributing the asset is not so much of just handing over the tangible property of it, right? It's more of the legal ownership or the title, uh, or rather the cash value of that particular asset. So for example, if you say that part of your schedule of your assets in, uh, includes your car, so that car is supposed to be liquidated and then the, the proceeds, if whatever there is, if any, is to be then uh, distributed. So you can include your car in that sense. Or rather, if your instruction is that, oh, this person, the car shall be taken over by this person, for example, as long as it's within its limits to be given, then so be it. But then again, you see, if you're talking about transfer of ownership, right? Uh, then that mm-hmm. falls under, a, a, you know, you would need to specifically give that kind of instruction, perhaps by way of Nusria or either that by way of Hiba. Ah. If you do a deed of gift, for example, I, I want to, if I die, I'm going to give you this car, for example. So then you can, you can uh, write a deed of gift. It's also another form of instrument to say that. Deed of gift, okay. Upon my death, uh, then uh, you will take actual possession of the vehicle. And of course, it's to do all the necessary transfer instrument, uh, you know, that you require. It's simple if the car is paid for. There's no more debt to it and mm-hmm. all that. But what if the car is not paid for and I do a deed of gift to someone? Well, it all depends whether that person is also financially able to take over. That's one. Mm-hmm. Uh, or rather, is there any other means to finance the car other than uh, that person receiving the gift itself? That, that okay, could, okay. Know, so, so that could be stipulated in your will as to suggest or rather in the deed of gift uh, that, you know, if the car is not fully paid, then or rather there is no insurance to fully pay the car after one's death, then of course, uh, you know, practically be, the, the practicalness of whether you can affect that gift uh, itself would be a question that you need to deal with next. Uh, you know, one person can... Right give everything in the deed of give but whether or not it's pragmatic or <laughs> correct but it's membebankan pula kan Cars is one of the assets that it's pretty common for us so it's it's something that i think which i i'm quite intrigued about also like you know my husband passed on and we have a car a family car so um i take over the car Yep. You know, that kind of, I mean, it, there's no succession thing, right, for cars. But then again, yep. being his spouse, I it's naturally that I take over the car. Sure. But if I can't afford the car, then I have to like, you know, my means and ways to actually let go of it. Lah. That's that's all, right? And I share with you a realized scenario that I faced myself because uh, mm-hmm. when, my, when my father passed on uh, 10 years ago, so he left behind a car. And at the point of time, I didn't have my driving license also. So I didn't felt the need to, you know, I, I couldn't take over the car firstly. And uh, I felt that it was it was going to be a huge financial constraint, you know, on our family to to keep the car or maintain the car when none of us mm-hmm, could mm-hmm. also utilize it. And uh, 
the most practical thing to do is to let it go. I mean, it is the circumstances that has changed, right? So I, I guess it's All right. you know, as much as we try to maintain the same standard of living after one passes after one, on, yeah. Uh, but it's also to be as practical and, you know, realistic as possible at the same time. True, true. Practical and realistic, yes. All right. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> don't leave your children with loans, ah. So. <laughs> oh, I hope not. Just... I hope not. But, but, but a car is a depreciating asset, though. So I mean, I don't see how that is going to help anyone in the future, other than you know, just the convenience of, you know, true moving around. Yeah. Transportation. I, I <laughs> yeah. Suppose. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Pro provided you can afford. That's all, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Actually, I was watching Mr. Naim video on TikTok after we recorded our podcast. So he mentioned that Farahid is perfect, but our family is not. Mm -hmm. So in the event, right, just now you mentioned uh, there is already a nomination and will. Can both will and even nomination be contested? Because, for example, maybe my dad already nominate get a list, but actually I feel me, I as a daughter should get most of it because I've been taking care of him. Mm -hmm. Right, so can it be contested, both will and nomination? Well, I guess the only way to contest a nomination is that nomination was not done properly. Uh, firstly, in the absence of a witness, uh, you know, the procedural, there are procedural irregularities uh, as, as far as the nomination is done, then I think that would be contestable. But if everything is done proper, the nomination is the intention of the testator or is the intention of the party making the nomination, then... Uh, you know, most of the time that will not be successful, all right? Uh, as far as the will, whether or not it could be contested, it depends also how the will is done. Uh, you know, there, there must be a need for two male Muslim witnesses. Uh, in the absence of those as well, then the, the will itself will be invalid and people can contest that it will not be a valid will to begin with. And also if it breaches the, the rules, for example, uh, where you are giving a one-third in the Farahid uh, to a Farahid beneficiary or to a Farahid beneficiary. Now, that's going to be invalid because your one-third is only supposed to be willed out to a non-Farahid beneficiary. So those are areas where it could be contested. But as far as if everything is done proper, uh, then the answer would be no, right? But if, let's say, one is uh, doing a Nusria and the Nusria is contested, then it all boils down to whether or not uh, beneficiaries can come together and consent that this is what Arwa intended to divide or distribute. And if everybody uh, is on the same page as that, then uh, the Nusria can follow through. Or else, if not, it goes down back to Farahid. Now, um, what my good friend Naim say that, you know, uh, Farahid is perfect, but our family is not. And he is absolutely right. Farahid uh, was implemented or rather is designed not to shortchange anybody. Uh, it is fair. Uh, a lot of people have this misconception that if I were to take care of my parents, whether or not I'm the son or the daughter, then I should be entitled or I should be given more as far as a uh, distribution of my parents' uh, estate or assets that, that may exist at the time. But this is the wrong misconception, right? Uh, as in, this is something that, you know, Fire Aid is not designed in accordance to that. It's not to reward or give to those that actually the ones taking care of parents, right? In fact, Farahid is rather made or designed to give in accordance to one individual's responsibility. Now, then the question is why the male beneficiaries get more because their responsibilities are in fact more, right? Whether or not they do their responsibility or their responsibility is taken care by another sibling or another child, 
uh, does not negate the fact that you know Farid is supposed to be applied in that manner. So if as a child or as a daughter you have taken care of your parents, then that is your blessing, whether here in this dunyawi or in the in akhirat. That's your pahala, right? But yep. if you then feel that oh you should be rewarded as far as distrib- distribution of of your parents' estate, then that's not how Farid works. I guess it boils down to our nawaitu, our intention and our exactly. our heart. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's so spot on. Eh? Farait is perfect, but our family is not. Mm-hmm. It's because it's happening. That's why the best thing is to actually, you know, sit down with Mr. Zul, get your assets and distribution sorted because I think some of the assets that we have, we are not actually aware of. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I yeah. mean, like, for example, I wouldn't know if my mom have, say other bank accounts that exist uh, without mm-hmm. me knowing. Right? As true, far as I know, true. Maybe she only informed me that, oh, I have one POSB account, but suddenly she has three formal bank accounts that have a <laughs> huge load of money in her name, and I wouldn't know. So when, when one engages a counsel, legal counsel, uh, when we do up all these procedures, we will also be you know, writing and, and uh, calling up this institution to make sure that uh, you know, all the potential assets that exist are, are made known to the beneficiaries, beneficiaries as well. And uh, Mr. Su, can I just check if the person passes on, when you do a collation of the estate, you'll be able to see all the institutions that she has assets in. But what if while doing up the will, are you able to actually generate that too? Well, the will is based on the instruction of the test data. So the test data will essentially inform me what are the insurances that the, he or she have, what are the assets that he or she have. And if they were to miss out either one also. I mean, at the end of the day, when we file the grant of probate, it's pretty standard that we will still uh, cover all the bases and do our due diligence to write to the respective institutions to make sure that, uh, you know, as far as the main ones are concerned, uh, all that is covered to make sure that there's nothing is left out. And you see, when you write a will, or rather when a person writes a will, uh, he would also appoint, he or she would appoint an executor. Now that executor is going to be the person authorized to then administer the estate of that test data. Mm. So the only person Phil would, would have more inside knowledge of the estate would be the executor. Mm-hmm. Or if the executor do not know, then it's within the responsibility of the executor to find out uh, or rather even uh, instruct the lawyers to find out to make sure that you know every corner is covered to make sure that there's nothing that's left out. In any case, for example, insurance, if, there, if there's no claim, I'm, I'm sure the insurance will actually notify uh, the estate that uh, you know, these are unclaimable proceeds, for example, and then uh, mm-hmm. that, that, would, that would at least make known to the executor to then come forward and, and extract whatever that's there. Uh, all right, all right. So the, the responsibility of a executor is actually quite heavy, eh? it's a to be honest. One. Yeah. Oh. All right. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, we're talking about assets, estates, and we're talking about, you know, amana. Yeah. I there think the keyword is being just, yeah. So, okay, one last question, Mr. Zul. Mm-hmm. Can you share with our listeners three important points to note as to why we should do up our will while we can and plan our estate properly for our family? Um, I guess three most important points for me in particular as an individual, if I were to uh, do up a will, I feel that uh, firstly, the intention has to be right. Firstly, mm-hmm. when you are planning your distribution, it is to firstly try to identify what is it that you want to safeguard or who you are trying to safeguard. That is something that you must consider. And, you know, as far as your assets, which you do not 
want to be uh, you know included in Farid or does not want you do not want that particular asset to fall within the Farid distribution, then of course uh, it is to do the needful such as you know funds in your own account, make it join. HGB house if you know you have an owner, uh, you're the you're not the only owner and you have a spouse, make sure it's joint tenancy so that they will inherit that gift upon your death automatically on the basis of uh, survivorship. So those, those are the key things that I think uh, and also because uh, when you write a will, uh, one of the main important things I say is not just about estate distribution, it's also to pre-select who you want your executor to be. And I think that's important uh, because if you don't do so and upon your death, where one needs to file a letters of administration without a will, right? It could be anybody. It could be any of your fire aid beneficiaries. And by then, it's beyond your control. Uh, then this is where sometimes, uh, you know, siblings will dispute who wants to be the administrator. So if you were to write a will, you can also then include the executor. And also in your will, uh, for, for those particularly that have children, you know, you can in fact include a legal guardian for the children in the will. Oh, okay. oh that's so important. Today. Especially when our children are very young, eh, Mr. Zul. Yeah. I think it's very important, yeah. Because, uh, you know, the default position is, of course, if one parent were to pass on, you know, the, the surviving parent is supposed to, you know, assume responsibility over the children, right? Uh, yeah. But, you know, what if in the event, uh, both parties pass away at the same time or within a very short span of time where the other party thereafter is also ill or then after that passes on? So when you appoint a legal guardian, uh, then that legal guardian... You know, will assume responsibility and, and look after the child's well-being. And I think that is important. And most parents uh, feel that when you talk about will, it's just for the purpose of uh, estate distribution, which is not the case. Uh, yeah, I can, agree. Can include appointing a legal guardian at the same time. It has been something that's on my mind for quite a few months, actually. I mean, to appoint a legal guardian, because I think it's a huge responsibility. I mean, if you have one child, it's pretty simple. I think anybody, it's okay to, to look after. But then if you have three... You wouldn't want to separate your children, you know, into different exactly. homes and things like that. Yeah. So I think it's a thinking point for, for most parents, especially, you know, worst case scenario, we do not want it to happen, you know, uh, that both parents passed on, but it's something that we have to put on paper, definitely. And I, and I think yeah. uh, the last Thanks for point, the reminder, yeah. <laughs> and I think the last point uh, I, I guess I want to share is that, you know, look, death is uh, inevitable, right? Yeah. It is certain. Yep. But the time, although it's written, it is uncertain. Yeah. I think I always tell my clients that, I got goosebumps. Uh, <laughs> don't take chances, all right? And, uh, you know, start now and, you know, rather than it's too late. True, true. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Mr. Zul. Thank you so much for sharing with us legal process of will writing Singapore. And it's indeed an insightful sharing session with regards to Muslim law and Farid. Okay, to the rest of you out there, you can drop us the Wealth Strategies Duo for Wealth-Related Matter at Wealth Strategies Duo. Thank you, thank you, thank you Mr. Zul. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> so thank you for listening to What the Money, the podcast. See you again. Bye.